we celebrate liberty. Live free or die, General John Stark wrote in 1809 in a letter celebrating the Revolutionary War which gave birth to the United States of America. The motto was already made popular as a motto of the French Revolution. Live free or die became the motto of the state of New Hampshire in 1945. Of course, the American patriot Patrick Henry, on March 23, 1775, in a speech to the House of Burgesses in Virginia, famously said these words, Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God! I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. How many of you want to be free? Absolutely free. No rules, no demands, nobody telling you what you can do or not do, no government regulating your choices, no church controlling your decisions. You are free to do whatever you want to do. My life, my choice, you say. It sounds wonderful. It sounds so, well, liberating. We love liberty, freedom. But I'm sorry, my friends. Such liberty is not biblical. You say, Dave, you've been preaching about how we are free in Christ. If I'm free, why can't I do whatever I want to do? It is Patrick Henry's false choice between liberty and slavery with no middle ground. Paul explains another way in Galatians 5, verses 13 to 15. It is the slavery of love. The slavery of love. As one writer put it, Christianity is like a narrow bridge over a place where two polluted streams meet. One stream is called legalism, and the other is libertinism. We have always struggled with our balance on that bridge down through church history. In fact, we struggle with our balance on that bridge every day of our lives. We are always in danger of falling off the bridge into the polluted stream of legalism or the polluted stream of libertinism. Legalism says that laws make us holy. There will always be moralists who fall off the bridge into the polluted stream of legalism. Moralists try to construct laws which make us holy. But those laws inevitably fail as we have seen in our study of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Libertinism says that you can do anything you want, because you are holy in Christ. It is promiscuous liberty. It is liberty that lives for self and not for Christ. It is liberty that plays the harlot by seeing how close I can get to the world without becoming polluted by the world. Libertinism pursues my goals and my choices at the expense of Christ's goals and Christ's choices. There will always be people 
who fall off the bridge into the dirty water of either legalism or libertinism. The pollution is just as poisonous on either side of that bridge. God places limits on our liberty as Christians. In Galatians 5, verses 13 to 15, Paul tells us that liberty, Christian liberty, is the slavery of love. There is a slavery that is liberty. It is the slavery of love. In marriage, I sacrifice my liberty out of love for my wife. I choose to be enslaved by love, so love limits my liberty. There are two ways that Paul tells us in these verses that love limits our liberty. First, in verse 13, we see that love is the motive for service. Love is the motive for service. For you were called to freedom, Paul writes. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. When you become a Christian, you are free. For the first time in your life, you are free not to indulge the flesh. The flesh is your unregenerate, unsaved human nature. You and I were not free before we became Christians. That is when we were not free. You were in slavery to your sin nature, which is the flesh. The flesh is human nature dominated by sin, and that flesh enslaved you up until you became a Christian. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 1 that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people cannot give themselves life. Dead people cannot be freed from death by their own abilities because dead people have no abilities. Dead people are, well, dead. Dead people don't need to be revived. They need to be resurrected. Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 6 and 7, that the mind set on the flesh is death, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. That is what Martin Luther meant by his book, The Bondage of the Will. Before we became Christians, we were slaves to our sinful flesh. It is only after we become Christians that we are free not to sin. Paul says in Galatians 5.13, Don't turn that freedom into an opportunity for the flesh to enslave you again. The word opportunity is a Greek word which comes from the military. It's a military term. It meant to allow an army a base of operations from which to attack us. In other words, Christian, do not allow your sinful flesh a beachhead in your life from which to attack and enslave you all over again. We are at war. It is a spiritual war, but it is a war nevertheless. Many Christians wonder why they fall into sin so easily. 
Paul writes in Romans seven eighteen and 19, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Why? It's because we allow sin a beachhead from which to attack us. We allow sin a tactical advantage in our lives. And so it's no wonder that we do what we don't want to do. My friends, if you have a problem with lust, do not scroll down to the list of X-rated movies. Maybe you shouldn't even be scrolling through the movies in the first place. If it's going to give the flesh a beachhead into your mind. Don't pick up the magazine with the pictures you know are in it. You are giving the flesh a beachhead into your mind. Paul is saying, smarten up. Smarten up. Liberty does not mean that you can give your flesh a beachhead from which to attack and expect to win the battle with sin. You say, well, Dave, that sounds awfully legalistic to me. After all, I'm free. You can't tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want. No, my friends, I'm not being legalistic. It's just spiritual common sense. You are free, but why be a fool? You do not have to give the enemy the tactical advantage if you expect to win the battle. It's better to set up some boundaries to protect your perimeter so you won't be surprised by sin. Too many Christians are playing Russian roulette and then wondering what to do after the gun goes off and ruins their lives. So, if we are not free to do what we want, what are we free to do? We are free to serve one another. That is what Paul says in Galatians 5.13. Christian freedom means that through love we can serve one another. Instead of trying to see how close you can come to the fire without being burned, try to use your liberty to serve other people. The word translated serve is the verb form of the Greek word used in Galatians 5 verse 1 for slavery. Serving here is slavery. Slavery to each other is the Christian form of freedom. This is the great paradox of the Christian faith. Christian liberty means that we become love slaves of each other. That's why Paul could call himself a bond slave of Jesus Christ. We are slaves of Christ and slaves of each other in the body of Christ. When I was in college, oh, a long time ago now, there was a saying which went like this. If you dig it, do it. If you dig it, do it. The point was that if you liked it, you were free to do it. I used to see this statement on bumper stickers on cars, and I had the urge to get a sledgehammer and smash the car window with it. 
And when the owner wanted to know why I had done it, I would just point to his bumper sticker and say, I dug it, so I did it. I'm free, aren't I? I can do whatever I want, right? You say, that's ridiculous, Dave. But it is no more ridiculous than the arguments that I hear many Christians use to justify their choices today. The truth is that love for one another limits our liberty. We don't do those things because even the world understands that liberty has limits whenever my liberty hurts you. Even the world understands that my rights end where your rights begin, although many have a hard time drawing that line. Love enslaves us, and we readily submit to that slavery. Henry Ward Beecher said, The only slave on God's earth that needs no compassion and pity is the slave of love. For example, just think of a mother's love. No one commanded her to love that baby. No one commanded her to love that child. Yet you could not pay her enough money in all the world to serve another child the way she will serve her own child. Or take the example of a young man dating a girl. Isn't it amazing how suddenly his entire life changes overnight? The very activities he never would do before, he'll do now. Because he's in love. Love enslaves us. But we're perfectly happy with this form of slavery. In fact, people go to great lengths to find this form of slavery. Marriage is essentially the slavery of love. So how do we serve one another? We serve others when we don't make them feel uncomfortable about their convictions. We serve one another when we give up our rights to do what we want to meet their needs. We serve one another when we become love slaves of other people. You say, no way, preacher. No one owns me. No one is going to tell me what to do. I'm my own man. I make my own choices. I'll say it like it is. Fine. But you do not understand the first thing about Christianity. Christian love puts the other person first, no matter who that person is. Christian love gives up our rights for the sake of others. When you serve out of Christian love, it is not because someone pressured you or ordered you to do that, but because you voluntarily give up your rights for that person. We do not give up our rights because someone required us to give them up. That's obedience, not love. We give up those rights, those freedoms that we have, because we love that person more than we value our rights. Love involves respect for the convictions of others, even though we don't agree. Love does not flaunt its freedom before others. During the COVID-19 pandemic, protests focused on our rights and our freedoms. 
One sign said that masks were the new symbols of tyranny. My body, my choice, read another sign. Freedom matters, no forced masks, trumpeted another person. One sign blamed maskers by saying, Your fear doesn't take away my freedom. The mask wars are all about rights and freedom. And many Christians are caught up in the mask wars as they proclaim their freedom to do what they want and their rights as citizens. My friends, there is a better way. It is the slavery of love. In Christ, we are free to serve others. We don't have to agree with them, but we should serve them in love. As Christians, Christ calls us to surrender our rights to serve the fears and hurts of others. Your fear does take away my freedom as a Christian. I gladly surrender my freedom to do what I want, to serve what you need. Why? Love. It's not the government that makes me do it. It's my love for others. Love motivates me to serve others in the community. Love motivates me to become the slave of other Christians who might fear a virus more than I do. My rights are not as important as the needs of my brother in Christ, the Bible tells me. Love limits my liberty. Let's continue with Paul's reasoning about this slavery of love in verses 14 and 15. We have seen that love is the motive for service in verse 13. We serve one another out of love. Now we see that love is the law for the saints in verses 14 and 15. Love is the law for the saints. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Now here is a Christian paradox. Paul uses the law, which he has been attacking for five chapters in Galatians, as support for liberty. He quotes from the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 19.18 in order to support freedom from the Mosaic Law. The whole law can be summarized in this one law, Paul says. It is the law of love. If you love as God would have you love, you will not be a legalist. In fact, you will have fulfilled the whole law if you really love as God wants you to love. That is why I say to you that legalism is not the presence of law, or else Paul would be a legalist, and so would God. Legalism is the use of the law to gain righteousness before God. I cannot gain any more righteousness than Christ has gained for me on the cross. The issue is not the presence of rules, but what those rules are expected to do. Rules can never produce righteousness that pleases God. 
Just as legalism is not the presence of law, so liberty is not the absence of law. That's anarchy. No country, organization, or church can function without law. Liberty is the use of our freedom from law to serve God and his will. Paul said it over in Romans 6, verse 18. And having been freed from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. You become slaves of righteousness. That's the paradox of Christian liberty. Elizabeth Elliot called it the liberty of obedience. Christian liberty is the slavery of love. My friends, you cannot love with God's love and be a legalist. Legalism is the absence of love. Neither can you love with God's law and practice libertinism. Libertinism, that is, standing on your rights to do what you want, libertinism is the absence of love. Christian liberty is the slavery of love. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia many, many years ago, liked to tell the story of his experience at a Bible conference in Montrose, Pennsylvania, around 1928. He was speaking to about 200 young people, and some older people had arrived to hear him as well. One day, two older ladies complained to him that some of the girls were not wearing stockings. <laughs> this sounds very strange today, I know, but in those days, Christian women were expected to wear stockings as a form of modesty. Well, these la ladies wanted Dr. Barnhouse to rebuke the girls for not wearing stockings. Dr. Barnhouse looked the older ladies in the eyes and said, The Virgin Mary never wore stockings. They gasped and said, She didn't? Barnhouse continued, in Mary's time, stockings were unknown. So far as we know, they were first worn by prostitutes in Italy in the 15th century when the Renaissance began. Later, a lady of the nobility scandalized people by wearing stockings at a court ball. Before long, everyone in the upper classes was wearing stockings, and by Queen Elizabeth's time, stockings had become the badge of the prude. Those ladies never brought up that subject again. Of course, now the days of women in pantyhose are long past. I would point out that if those older women had been more concerned about loving those young ladies instead of condemning them, those women wouldn't have been so legalistic. If they had been more concerned with fulfilling the law of love, they would have come alongside those girls and helped them grow in their Christian lives. You see, they didn't really care about the spiritual lives of those girls as much as they cared about whether they conformed to an arbitrary cultural standard. This kind of attitude leads to what Paul discusses in verse 15. If you bite and devour one another... Take care that you are not consumed by one another. The verbs used here speak of wild animals engaged in a bloody struggle. 
It's like the story of two snakes who grabbed each other by the tails and each swallowed the other. This is the way it is in the church when we fall into the polluted waters of legalism or libertinism. We start fighting each other for our rights and soon we start swallowing each other until there's nothing left to either of us. Sadly, we have seen many churches badly damaged by Christians fighting about masks or vaccines during these past two years. Some Christians are so busy fighting for their rights, they have forgotten that love is more important than liberty, and the church is devoured by those battles. What's the alternative? It is the law of love. The kind of love I am talking about is not some sentimental kind of love which cannot abide disagreements. The kind of love I am talking about is not some wimpy love which cannot hold convictions or handle confrontations. Paul is not talking about some wishy-washy faith that goes along with anything and anyone. God's kind of love believes strongly in the truths that matter eternally, lets go of the convictions that have no eternal value, and has the wisdom to know the difference. Here are some good test questions to help us evaluate our love. Do you care more about the other person getting right with God than you do about being right yourself? Do you care more about being right with others than you do about protecting your rights on earth? Jesus is our perfect example of the law of love. He sacrificed himself for those who hated him. He taught his disciples to live by the law of love. Remember in John 13 at the Last Supper, Jesus laid aside his outer garments, took a wash basin, and began to wash each of the disciples' feet one by one. He spent his last hours with them seeking to fulfill the law of love. You will also remember that in the upper room that night, the disciples had been engaged in a great argument, a big fight, about which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. And while they were arguing about which one of them would be the greatest, Jesus was washing their feet. That's the law of love. Jesus rebuked the disciples, and he told them that the one who is greater is the one who serves. I went to a brethren's seminary where foot washing was considered one of the ordinances of the church, just like baptism and communion. Now, I do not believe that foot washing is an ordinance like baptism for reasons that are unimportant to this passage. However, I have often wondered if we shouldn't practice the act of washing one another's feet every once in a while because it teaches us the law of love so beautifully. I find an interesting irony in the modern church as I read these verses. I find many Christians today who characterize the church as unloving and judgmental. 
but they preach a one-way love. The very people who criticize the church for being unloving are often unloving themselves. They say, you ought to love us and accept us, even though we don't live like you or hold your convictions. We're free to do as we please. We can say what we want to say, and you're supposed to sacrifice your convictions to love us. But they aren't willing to love others enough to sacrifice their convictions for someone else. They are as judgmental of others as others are of them. Libertinism breeds a reverse snobbery among Christians that celebrates telling people off, speaking your mind, being rude and offensive while calling it a right of our liberty. If you don't believe me, just check out a Facebook fight among Christians. It's downright nasty. Friends, we have no right ever as Christians to be rude, unkind, and mean to one another. On the other side from libertinism is legalism. I find many Christians who are so caught up in defending their religious rules that they look down their holier-than-thou noses at others. They chastise others for being undisciplined and unholy and do not love them enough to help them. They only condemn and ostracize people from the church. They are so busy pursuing holiness that they forget to exhibit love. Such is the nature of legalism. Libertinism that celebrates my rights is wrong. Legalism that imposes my laws is wrong. We must learn that liberty is the slavery of love. Do you love others enough to give up everything for their good? Is there anything in your life you will not give up if it hinders the spiritual growth of your brother in Christ or puts a stumbling block in the path of someone who needs to know Christ's love? My mother was a great example to me of this principle at work. She's with the Lord now but she spent years on the mission field sacrificing her rights out of love for other people. Everyone talks about the sacrifices of missionaries who give up the comfort and security of living in the United States. But the real sacrifices are the intangible struggles of living in a culture which is so different from your own with different values and different lifestyles. We lived in Pakistan, which is an Islamic country, and that meant that my mother had to sacrifice some of her rights in order to reach Pakistanis for Christ. We had to have a male cook to buy the groceries and cook many of the meals, because women were not allowed to go to the marketplace and buy groceries. When she left the house, she had to wear certain kinds of clothing so as not to offend the people. The more conservative Muslims required the women to wear the burqa that you see on the news. This was a garment that covered the whole body with only a fabric mesh to allow them to see out. Even if it was 100 degrees outside, they had to wear it. The less conservative Muslims allowed women to wear a hijab, which was a covering of the head and neck. My mother always wore a shawl over her head and shoulders, 
and she wore the standard two-piece full-body clothing for women called the shalwar kameez. She put up with a cook who took over her kitchen and did her grocery shopping for her, and she wore clothes far different than her own. It was all because of the culture where she lived. Now, my mother had the right to not do all of that. She didn't have to. She was an American, and there was no legal requirement for her to do those things. She had the right to walk out into the bazaar wearing an American dress and a light blouse in that blistering hot weather. But she didn't do it. Why? Because she loved the people and wanted to reach them for Christ. She limited her liberty by her love in very practical ways, which included the kinds of clothes that she wore. She gave up her rights for the sake of others. We think that such sacrifices are for missionaries. But, my friends, they're not. The principle is the same for all of us in our own countries. Our liberty to practice our rights is limited by our love for others in our communities here, and especially for people in the church, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Why not start practicing the slavery of love right now, and right here, 